following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. We can turn your Bibles to Romans 10. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13 today. Wonderful passage. And... Uh, Kind of disappointing it fell on a Sunday where uh, we've got a smaller crowd, but that's what the Lord has in His sovereignty. So, uh, Romans 10, verses 9 through 13 is where we're going to be. But before I read the passage, what is the best news that you have ever received? Now, you could take that uh, a variety of different directions, I suppose. So, maybe you think of a time where you were just elated because uh, your favorite political candidate won a close election. Uh, Maybe uh, you were excited to hear the news that we finally took out Osama bin Laden. Uh, On a far less serious note, I was excited. I jumped up and down like a few times in my life when the Cubs won the World Series. And uh, of course, hopefully, when you think of the best news you've ever received, there's probably something uh, related to to people, personal news, that that trumps all of that. Uh, I was not surprised per se, but I was Pretty happy when Heidi said yes when I asked her to marry me. And I also uh, very distinctly remember a, a cold morning in Michigan in January. And I was at the church working away feverishly. And Heidi called me up with this sad voice and said, I'm sick. Can you come home? And of course, you know, as a loving, compassionate husband, I rushed in my car and ran home to take care of my wife. No, I was annoyed. Like, I'm working. Take some medicine, go to sleep. And uh, I got home and walked in the door and she had a huge smile on her face and she said, I'm pregnant. And, and that was a big surprise because we uh, had kind of wondered if that was ever going to happen. And so we hugged and rejoiced and thanked God and, and then I went back to work. It's great to get good news, isn't it? We enjoy receiving good news. So listen up because today's passage announces the best news that sinners like us could ever receive. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. God promises in this passage that a sinner like you can enjoy a relationship with Him. And it's not impossibly difficult. No, I mean, this passage sounds almost too good to be true. It's so simple. All you have to do is believe. That's great news. And, 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 it's, and I'm praying, I've been praying all week that, that God would use this passage to, to bring someone to, to believe for the very first time. And if you already believe, I hope that this will just be another opportunity to rejoice in what God has done for you. And I hope that we'll leave motivated to go out 
and share this simple good news with everyone who will listen. And our passage gives two reasons why the gospel is good news. The first reason is, is that all you must do is believe. All you must do is believe. And I'd like to ask and answer three questions from verses 9 and 10 about this wonderful reality. So, so the first question is, is what must you believe? What must you believe? Now, uh, Josh Groban says in his popular song, Believe, believe in what you feel inside and give your dreams the wings to fly. You have everything you need if you just believe. Now that sounds really lovely and cute. But the reality is uh, that it's not true. But it is how most people think about faith. So, so for most people, faith is a feeling inside and, and it doesn't have to be rational It doesn't have to be based in reality. It's just whatever you feel strongly inside of you. But that's not biblical faith. God is not saying merely having faith itself or religious faith or or being a spiritual person is what saves. No, verses 9 and 10 mention two important gospel realities. The Lordship and the resurrection of Christ. That you must believe. Now, now that is not an exhaustive list. There there are other essential truths that the New Testament says everyone must believe. But but Paul chooses these two strategically. So so we want to focus on those two truths. And I want to actually start with the second one, which is that that you must believe Jesus rose from the dead. So again, verse 9 says that you have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, I imagine that we are all familiar with the resurrection of Christ. It's one of the most well-known Bible stories, and of course, it has its own holiday dedicated to it. But the Bible teaches that that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for human sin. And the sky grew dark as God poured out His wrath on Jesus for the sins of the world. And then Jesus died. And it looked like Satan and death had won. But three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead. And it was one of the most climactic moments in world history. Because Jesus won the victory over sin and over the judgment that we deserve. He defeated the curse which has plagued humanity since the fall. And the resurrection definitively proved that Jesus is not just a man, that He is the Son of God. So the resurrection is good news. And so you can only be saved if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I hope that you do. And then the second, a vital gospel truth that Paul mentions, is that Jesus is Lord. So he says at the beginning of verse 9, that you must confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Now, Jesus has always been the eternal sovereign God. But, uh, so, so he has always been Lord. But, but the Bible teaches that the resurrection declared Jesus' lordship in, in a special way. So, so keep your finger here. Let's go back to Romans 1. And it's been a long time since we were in Romans 1. Uh, but, but Romans 1, 3 and 4 
uh, tie these two events, the resurrection and the lordship of Christ together. Romans 1 verse 3 says, says that the gospel is concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so like Jesus' Lordship, now this passage, Jesus has always been the Son of God. But what this passage says is that when Jesus rose again, it, it, it affirmed that He is the Son of God, and it declared that He is the Son of God. And furthermore, the idea is that the resurrection qualified Him to rule over creation. So, so again, it's been a long time, uh, but when we went through this passage, I think it would have been June of 2022, um, we, we saw that, that from several passages that, that Jesus, when, when He rose again, He was exalted to the Father's right hand. And Peter, for example, said in his sermon at Pentecost that Jesus has been exalted to the Father's right hand and He is sitting there in glory awaiting the day when He will make His enemies His footstool. And so the day is coming because of the resurrection when Jesus will return. And He will judge all evil. And Jesus will hold every person accountable for their actions. And that is a vital piece of the Gospel. Because a lot of people are willing to believe in a higher power of some sort. They're willing to acknowledge the existence of God. But many of them aren't willing to go so far as to say that Jesus is their Lord or that they are accountable to Him. And just think of the Gentiles in Paul's day. I mean, they it really didn't do any damage to their theology, their worldview, to acknowledge that Jesus was some kind of God, kind of on the level of Hercules, for example. Because they could have as many of those as they wanted. But to acknowledge Jesus as the one and only Lord, to whom I am accountable, well, that's entirely different. And so it was a difficult thing. And and of course, even a lot of people today who would call themselves Christians of some sort, they're going to resist that reality that Jesus is their Lord. At least their life doesn't reflect that they really believe it. So why do we resist the Lordship of Christ? Well, very simply, we like to be our own Lord. We like to make our own rules and do our own thing. And as well, we know that we are in trouble if we are accountable to a holy God. So so the Lordship of Christ is one of the hardest truths of the Gospel for sinners to accept. But God says here that the Lordship of Jesus is essential to the Christian message. So so what Paul tells us here in verse 9 of our text is that God won't accept just any kind of faith. Just having faith of any sort does not not make you a Christian. You must believe that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. That He really did die. But then He rose again. And you must believe that He is the exalted Lord of creation and that He is Lord over me. So, So that's what you must believe. 
And then the second question we want to answer is, how do I believe? What does that mean exactly? And notice that verses 9 and 10 answer that question with two actions. You must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Now, I want to emphasize that the order here is not important because actually, if you notice, verse 10 actually switches the order around. And verse 10 mentions believing and then confessing. And so what's going on uh, between verses 9 and 10 is what's uh, commonly referred to as a chiasm. It's a, it's a literary device that was very common in, 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 in Greek and Roman literature. And, and it's just simply where, where you, have a, you have a kind of an A, B, B, A structure. So the first thought goes at the end as well, second thought, second to last, and so forth. And, and the center idea is always the center. So getting saved fundamentally involves believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead as well as every other essential gospel truth. So so again, Paul is saying, as he has many times in the book of Romans, that I don't earn my place in heaven. No, it is a gift that God gives when I believe. I am saved by faith alone. And that's all God requires. You believe the gospel. Now, again, I want to be clear that that true faith is more than just giving God a thumbs up. Like, yeah, I believe in you. You know, it's it's more than believing in Santa Claus. You know, there's lots of people that, you know, they want to kind of believe in in, in some kind of of Santa Claus. It's fun to believe and it's great to imagine he's out there, but you kind of know he really isn't. That's how a lot of people believe in God. But, but that's not what he's saying here. He says, believe in your heart. And the, and the heart, in, in biblical thought, is not just a feeling inside. It's, it's the very center of who you are. So, so your heart represents your convictions. It, it, re- it represents your, your mind, your intellect, uh, your will, your emotions, all those various things. So to believe in your heart this truth is to have a deep conviction that is anchored in reality. And it transforms all of life. So do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord? And are you trusting in Him alone? And and is that transforming how you live? I hope that that is true. So, So first, you must believe in your heart. And then secondly, you must Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Now, for, for someone like, you know, I grew up uh, under, under the preaching of the gospel my whole life, and, and I've always kind of scratched my head at this one, and, and maybe you have as well. So, so, so how does confession fit with this? Is Paul adding some kind of work here that, that is in addition to my faith and is necessary for me to be saved? Well, we know that Paul can't be adding some sort of work to saving faith because he has been very clear in Romans that we are saved by faith alone. So, so I think what's going on here, and well, what I know is going on, is he's borrowing language from what he just said in verse 8. So in verse 8, he, he quotes Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. And verse 8 says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. And then verse 9 goes on 
to explain what that word of faith is. So so what he's doing here is he's just taking that language from verse 8, and and he's framing what it means to believe based on that language. So, So how we ought to understand confessing with the mouth is just simply that it is an outward expression of the conviction that is inside me. And if you truly believe the gospel, you really believe Jesus rose from the dead and He is Lord, then you are not going to be ashamed to confess with your mouth that reality. You know, that's why uh, we, we require some sort of verbal confession for someone to be baptized. We don't just invite anyone and everyone to get in the water and get dipped. No, no we want to hear your confession of faith. And we want to evaluate that it is legitimate. Now, now that confession doesn't save that person. But it is an important validation of what's, what God has done in the heart. And, and, and notice here that the specific content of that confession is significant. I mean, Paul says that we will confess Jesus as Lord. Now, The old King James uh, says, you will confess the Lord Jesus. And I think the NASB here and and most other uh, more modern translations have made a good improvement on that translation uh, that that is more faithful to what Paul uh, clearly intends and and emphasizes the point that he is trying to make. That that getting saved requires more than just a general belief in the Lord Jesus. No, no, the emphasis that he is trying to make is that Jesus is Lord. You confess that he is Lord. And that's a, that's a very essential piece of the gospel. You know, did you know that the Bible, the New Testament, calls Jesus Savior ten times? But it calls Jesus Lord over 700 times. Now, now why is it that the New Testament talks so much more about the Lordship of Jesus than it does about the fact that He is the Savior. Well, I think for one, it's because, I mean, we all want a Savior. We don't necessarily all want a Lord. But you can't really appreciate the truth of the Gospel. And you can't really appreciate your need and what it is to be a Christian without first coming to grips with the fact that Jesus is the Lord. That He is our authority and we are accountable to Him. Of course, I have to mention that this idea uh, has sparked a lot of controversy in the church the last 30 or 40 years or so uh, around what's sometimes called lordship salvation. And, um, and I think you know, people uh, sometimes are nervous about that because... They want to protect salvation by grace alone. We don't want to communicate in any sense that you have to do some kind of work in addition to faith in order to be saved. And I think as well, if you've been raised in a theology or in a church that teaches that the Christian life is defined by crisis decisions, then lordship can sound like perfectionism. Or it can sound like some sort of higher life that that is impossible and and frankly is especially impossible for someone who is a new believer. So so maybe there's a better term. In fact, 
I think there probably are better, better terms. But, but so to, to be clear, the Bible teaches that spiritual growth is a lifelong process. And, and you don't have to fix everything to get saved. You just come to Jesus and you rest in Him for salvation. And from there, it might take a new Christian time to, to fully appreciate all the implications of Jesus' lordship. But you have to believe that Jesus is Lord. And if you believe that Jesus is Lord, you can't look the commands of Scripture in the eye and say, the Lord says I must do this, and repeatedly say, no, I'm not interested. No. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, you will respond to what the Scriptures teach. So so have you obeyed Romans 10.9? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And have you confessed that He is your Lord? And if not, will you trust in Him today? If you'd say that I have, does it show in what you say and how you live? And no one is perfect. But are you responsive to Jesus' lordship? And when God speaks to you in his word, is your heart to say, by the grace of God, I want to respond and obey? I hope that that is true of you. And if not, then there's no better time than to believe on Jesus right now. And that's because the promises of the gospel that Paul goes on to explain are truly incredible. And so the third question I want to answer is, what does God promise? What does God promise? And notice that verses 10 and 11 are going to make three promises to those who believe. And so the first promise he gives is there in verse 10 where it says that with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. So so the first promise he gives is is imputed or alien righteousness, as we talked about a long time ago as well in Romans chapter 4. And and I say that because we we saw in Romans chapter 4 verse 5 that God justifies or God declares righteous the ungodly. So, so, So the point there is, is that God doesn't wait for you to become righteous before He declares you righteous. No, instead, God justifies, God declares ungodly sinners. So so that means that this righteousness that He gives is not my righteousness. No, instead, it is God's righteousness. He credits, or the King James says, He imputes His perfect righteousness to our account when we believe. And that's great news. Because if eternity depended, my my hope for heaven depended on my ability to become righteous, well, I am in big trouble. Because I will never be righteous enough to please God. I will never measure up. But I don't have to. Because because the gospel teaches that, that, that when I believe, I stop trusting in myself. I stop trusting in my ability to merit favor. And I instead rest in God and He saves me. And so my eternity no longer depends on my righteousness. It depends on God's. 
And, and will God ever be dissatisfied with his own righteousness? Of course not. And so I can look forward to my judgment before God today with absolute certainty and confidence because I rest in the righteousness of Jesus. So imputed righteousness is an incredible blessing. And then the second promise he gives is salvation from judgment. Salvation from judgment. So verse 10 then goes on to say, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, you won't ever appreciate the the good news of the gospel, that the gospel is the best news, unless you first accept the really bad news that's included. Specifically, you have rebelled against a holy and just God. You have not obeyed everything that the Scriptures demand. And and you don't have to commit some terrible crime to to be guilty before the judgment of God. What's Romans 3.23? It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes you. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And that's specifically eternal death under God's judgment. It's not just saying that we're all going to die. It's saying that, that we deserve God's eternal judgment because of our sin. And that's really heavy to consider. But it's only when you are admit that you are a sinner and that you are hopelessly condemned before God that you will ever admit that you truly need a Savior. And only when you admit that well, can you appreciate the wonderful salvation that God provides? And I think it's, you know, it's part of our spiritual growth and part of how we come to love God and grow in our, our fascination with the gospel and joy in the gospel is that as I grow in Christ, I become more and more aware of just how desperate and needy I am. And so the, the gospel is good news because God saves those who are condemned. And notice here in particular that, that when he says you will be saved, that's actually in the future tense. So, so what, what Paul is doing here is he is looking forward to our final judgment before God. The Bible says that physical death is not the end for any man. We will all stand before God someday, and when we stand before God, eternity in heaven or eternity in hell will be in the balance. That's a scary day to think about, isn't it? You know, think about like some major test you took in school. Even if you are completely ready to ace that thing, there's still just a wait, right? And so all of us are going to stand before God someday. And God says that if you have believed the gospel, God promises that you will be saved in that day. God will not send you to hell. He will deliver you from judgment and He will welcome you into glory. And on top of that, verse 11 gives a third promise, which is satisfaction at that judgment. Verse 11 says, For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. That's also in the future tense. It's also looking to that same day and maybe a more, trans, a more precise translation of disappointed would be the word ashamed. Now, if you are still in your sin, if you stand before God someday, and, and Revelation says all the books will be opened, 
and we will give an account of our lives. If you have to stand before God someday and give an account of your life purely based on what you have done and not done, well, it's going to be a shameful and disappointing experience. As God uh, looks at all that you've done and He pronounces you guilty and condemned to judgment. But if you come before God someday and you stand in the righteousness of Christ, then you will not be ashamed because, because you are standing in Jesus. And God will welcome you with a smile, welcome you into glory in heaven. And so, as our text says, you will not be disappointed. You know, if you believe the gospel, you are not going to walk away from that final judgment thinking, man, I made the wrong choice. I wish that I had rejected that. I wish I had done my own thing. No. I mean, you're going to stand there rejoicing. You will not be disappointed. And we especially won't be disappointed with, with the blessing that follows, right? I mean, heaven is going to be incredible. God will not disappoint our faith in Him. We will be overjoyed at what He provides. So please, if you have not believed in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead and trusted Him for salvation, please believe on Him. Confess that He is Lord. And you can quietly call out to Him right now in your seat. And and just say, Jesus, I believe that You are the Lord and that I have sinned against Your will. But I believe that You died and You paid the penalty for my sins on the cross. And I believe that You rose again. And so I trust in You for salvation. And if you do that, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus says, you will be saved. If you've never done that, I'd urge you to do it right now. But, but maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds great, but, but I'm still not sure God would accept me because I've done some really bad things and, and I'm in a really bad place right now. So, so that sounds really good, but, but I need to go home and I need to, to, to take care of some things first. I, I need to clean up some things, maybe give me six months, give me eight months to kind of clean up my life take care of a few things, and then I can believe, and then God will save me. Well, Paul thought that you might say that. And so he emphasizes a second reason the gospel is good news, which is that anyone is welcome to believe. Anyone is welcome to believe. Look at how he ends the passage in verses 11 through 13. He says, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now what really stands out about those three verses is the universal language. And notice that the basis of this universal appeal is the character of the Savior. Again, verse 12 says that Jesus is the same, the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Now, we talked a lot in our study of Romans about the fact that there was a harsh divide in Paul's day between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews said, God belongs to us. He is our God, and all you Gentiles, you can't have Him. 
That was their attitude. But verse 12 points out that Jesus is not a local deity. He's not a national deity. No. He is the creator and Lord of all, cre- all people. He made everyone in the world. And, and we all live in His creation So He is a universal God. He is Lord of all. And Paul doesn't intend that to be scary. No, instead, it is supremely comforting because it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. You can be an atheist who's hated God your whole life and and come from the furthest corner from Christianity in the world. And God says, Jesus is still your Lord. He is Lord of all people. And therefore, He can be the Savior of all people too, if you simply believe. So so your background, your family history, all those things don't matter. They they are not legitimate excuses. He is Lord of all, so, so come to Jesus and be saved. I think this statement is also very significant as we think about world missions. Because sometimes we we can look at certain parts of the globe and think, you know, those people there are too far removed for God to do any sort of great work. Or or we can, you know, get get so caught up in our political interests or financial interests, things of that nature, and kind of despise certain parts of the world and, and not really have a heart for the nations, for reaching them for Christ. But God says to us here that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over China. He's Lord over Pakistan. He's Lord over Sudan and over every other corner of this planet. And He is saving people in every corner of this world. And so we ought to be motivated to take the Gospel to them with with zeal because He is Lord of all and He demands worship from all. And then notice that not only is Jesus Lord of all, He is also abounding in riches, it says in verse 12, for all who call on Him. Now now you might, and I've heard people say things like this. You know, the Gospel is so great. But but you know, God only has so much, well, everyone only has so much patience. And I'm sure that I've exhausted whatever patience God has. Now, I'm stubborn. I've done some really horrible things. So God surely won't receive me. Now again, God knew that you would say that. And so He tells us here that God is abounding in riches for all who call on Him. So, so Christ has more than enough grace to cover every sin. And He's not stingy with that grace. He is generous. He gives freely and abundantly. So, if you're sitting there and you know in your heart that you have not believed the Gospel, but you've got this reason, you're not quite ready to receive Christ. Now, I would take whatever excuse that is, crumble it up in a ball, and chuck it out of the way. Because Jesus is a generous Savior and He is ready to save all who call on Him. Yeah, and, and maybe you know, you're a Christian here and you're thinking about someone that you love that, that you want to see receive Christ. 
You know, don't give up on sharing the gospel with them because Jesus is abounding in riches for all who call on Him. God can save anyone. So keep pleading with them to be saved. So, so we have a great Savior. A great Savior. And, and as a result, notice the universal promise of the Savior in verse 13. He says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's such a wonderful verse, isn't it? It's such a, a simple promise of God that is so clear, so obvious, and so helpful. And it's wonderful, first of all, because God says that no one is excluded. In fact, verses 11, 12, and 13 all emphasize the universal availability of salvation. Verse 11 says, whoever believes. Verse 12 says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That He is Lord of all. For all who call on Him. And verse 13 says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord. So God says, You are welcome to be saved. He couldn't be clearer. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. And I love the simple description of how you can be saved. Both verses 12 and 13 say that you can be saved by calling on the name of the Lord. And that... It's just simply, uh, the, the, the imagery there from, from the Old Testament would be that, that calling on the name of the Lord is to pray. is to ask Him for something. To depend on Him. So, so, so you simply cry out to God. And you ask Him to save. You know, so, so God doesn't demand some grand emotional display. You don't have to cry and lose it and you know, just feel these overwhelming emotions to get saved. You don't have to walk through some very precise theological prayer where you mention every detail of the gospel and don't leave a single thing out and express it all perfectly to be saved. You don't have to be in a particular place. You don't have to have a particular posture. No, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, what does the, Pharisee, or the tax collector simply say? He says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the thief on the cross he wasn't exactly in the best place. And he certainly didn't have the best posture. But he just said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so what really matters is not any of those things. What matters is, is what's in your heart. If you believe the gospel, believe that Jesus is Lord, and call on Him to save, then God says He will save. And if you do that, God, and so God promises salvation. And, and verse 13 is so clear. I mean, God makes a plain promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God never breaks a promise. So, if you have not received Jesus, please receive Him today. He will change your life. And He will change your eternity. I mean, he demands a lot. He demands everything. But He is worth it all. And so Jesus is inviting you to come if you've never received Him. You know, it could be that you've been at LifePoint for years. We, we don't have, I mean, most, of, most everyone who's here today has been here a long time. And probably everyone in this room 
assumes that just about everyone in this room is saved. But that's not necessarily the case. And so maybe, maybe you're afraid of admitting that you're not saved. Maybe you know you've been acting for a long time. But I hope that regardless, you will bow the knee to Jesus and be born again. And maybe there's someone here that you have called on the name of the Lord to save you. But you struggle to be sure that you really are God's child. And, and I've mentioned before that, that I was there as a kid. I had called on the name of the Lord to save me. In fact, by the time I was in upper elementary, I'd called on the name of the Lord to save me more times than I could count. But I was never quite sure because I always wondered, well, well maybe I didn't quite have enough faith. Maybe I wasn't sincere enough. Maybe I, I missed something. You know, I've heard lots of other people say, you know, I called the name of the Lord to save me, but, but I've still got a lot of problems, and, and I've got a long ways to go, and they're frustrated with their sin, and so because they're, they're not advancing in Christianity like they think they should, then, then maybe they're not quite there. Well, if you struggle with doubts of any of those kinds, then I'd really encourage you to, to talk with, with me or another counselor in our church and, and just help let someone help you sort through what are legitimate reasons to doubt and what are illegitimate reasons. But I also hope that you will just rest in God's simple promise in this verse. You know, don't anchor your assurance to a feeling. Don't anchor your assurance to, um, you know, just... What happened when you were six years old or seven years old? No, anchor your assurance to the promise of God. God says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you have sincerely called in the name of the Lord to save you, then guess what? You're saved. So trust God's promise. Because it matters far more than how you feel. What you said or anything else. Look to God and rest in Him. So folks, the gospel is the best news in all the world. I hope you believe it. I hope that, that, that if you have believed it, that you are rejoicing in this gospel. And I hope that, that you are eager to go out and share it. You can share this message. You can tell people Jesus rose from the dead. He is Lord and if you believe on Him, you will be saved. So, so, so have confidence to go out and share the Gospel. Jesus is Lord of all. He can save anyone. So share the Gospel with everyone. And watch God work to draw sinners to Himself. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You so much for the wonderful, simple truths of this passage. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here who do not know Jesus as Savior, that today they would be born again. And God, for those of us who know you as Savior, I pray that we would be zealous to share this good news with others. And Lord, that we would rejoice every day in the salvation that we have received. Father, we love you. We thank you for this great, great truth. In Jesus' name, amen.